please pray with me. Father, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts might always be acceptable in thy sight. And Lord, we ask that we would always see how you provide for us and take courage in that fact and help us to be generous of heart with those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. We continue with our Lenten series on alms. What are alms? It's something like out of Robin Hood, right? Alms for the poor, right? It seems like something so foreign to the modern mind where we barely even carry around cash anymore, let alone give away alms to people. And yet, in the traditions of the church and the traditions even of the Jews, alms are an important thing. It's been a couple weeks. You're probably tired of me reading it to you, but I'll read it again, the preface for Ash Wednesday. The season of Lent is a time in which converts to the faith were prepared for holy baptism. It was also a time when those who, because of notorious sins, had been separated from the body of the faithful were reconciled by penitence and forgiveness and restored to the fellowship of the church. In this manner, the whole congregation was put in mind of the message of pardon and absolution set forth in the gospel of our Savior and of the need that all Christians continually have to renew our repentance and faith. I invite you, therefore, and I might add, I continue to invite you, therefore, in the name of the church, to the observance of a holy Lent by self-examination and repentance, by prayer and fasting and almsgiving, and by reading and meditating on God's holy word. So this week we're talking about that third point, almsgiving. First of all, is it biblical? Is it biblical? Where does this come from? You think to yourself, perhaps, I give to the church. Why do I need to give more as alms? What's the difference? You might also think to yourself, why does the church ask this particularly of her people? And what is almsgiving? What does it have to do with Lent? Why is Lent set aside as something, a time for almsgiving? Why is that an idea that is tied with devotion and becoming closer to Jesus? Well, the word alms comes to us from the Old English through Latin all the way back to Greek. And the Greek word for alms is actually ele mesune, ele mesune, which is from a Greek verb, elios, elios. What does it particularly mean? Well, it means in the noun form, to have works of pity, acts of mercy, gifts of charity. And of course, that comes from the verb to have pity, to have compassion, to give clemency to someone. Yes, alms is biblical. It's firmly rooted in the biblical tradition. 
you don't have to look far in the Bible, and unsurprisingly, um, it's alms, the idea of alms, or the Greek word behind it, is first used in the gospel, not of we as God's people, but of God himself. Do you ever think about that? God gives you alms. God gives you alms. Where does it occur? Actually, it occurs in Mary's song, the Magnificat. In Luke 1, 50, Mary is rejoicing because God has told her that she's going to bring forth the Savior. And in Luke 1, 50, actually, I'll start with verse 47. My spirit rejoices in God of my Savior, for he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy, there's the word. That's the same word for alms. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Do you see, Jesus himself is the first alms given to humanity. Jesus is the pity God takes upon us in our lowly, humble state. To have mercy or pity on us as human beings is something that God continually does from the Old Testament through the New Testament. Psalm 103 reads, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to, towards those who fear him. That's Psalm 103, verse 10. It's strange to think about, but God gives and provides for us from start to finish. Life itself for all people is from him. All of creation, all life is a gift from God. We don't create life. Our scientists cannot repl replicate the creation of life. We can put things in place so that life can happen, that's true. But we don't create life. We might loosely talk about creating life when a man and woman come together in that sexual act and create life, procreate, right? But even there, it's procreate, right? We, 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 we don't create out of nothing. Only God does that. Only he creates life. And we only participate in that life that he's created. We can participate in replicating it. We participate in living it. But we're not the cause. It's a glorious thing when, that God invites us into that creation process. But it's all at his invitation. And of course, God sending Jesus to save us from our sins is what? A recreation of us, right? You are a new creatures. You are a new creation, St. Paul tells us. So all acts of charity mirror God's charity. The medieval theologians talked about our acts of charity as being as the moon is to the sun. The moon in itself has no light. It reflects the light of the sun to the earth. And so we are like that. We have no light in ourselves, but we reflect God's light to the earth. All acts of charity mirror God's charity. We love because he first loved us. So it is with alms 
acts, works, gifts of money, and they're all an expression to God of gratitude. There's a second distinction. Alms are not the same as offerings or tithes. Why is that? Well, if you think to yourself, I've already given to the church, why do I need to give more? You're not understanding alms. The specific intention for alms is for the poor and the needy of God's people in the church. It's part of helping the community. It's part of helping the community. It's part of God's people coming together and caring for one another. St. Paul, standing before Governor Felix in Acts chapter 24, talks about alms as a central part to his faith. And it's funny that, you know, you might have missed it. I, I know I've missed it until looking up the research for this sermon. It's an integral part. This is Acts 24, verse 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, that is Christianity, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Verse 16. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. What's going on there? Paul is tying his faith and his hope to the care of God's people. And notice he breaks out alms from offerings, right? As Christians, we're bound together by covenant. We take care of one another, both spiritually and physically. It's true that offerings are given to the church, but they're given to the church to help the church operate. Offerings of time, talent, treasure, are often subject, the subject of our fall stewardship campaign, right? You've heard me talk about this before. You've heard our mission council talk about this before. But those offerings for the maintenance of the church are different. Because the church doesn't have budget lines for alms. The church doesn't have budget lines for helping the poor among us. The church has a budget that helps us operate, but it's to give the substructure so that we can be the church, so that we can support others, right? So, you know, it really is important that we talk about this. Of course, we can give directly to people in need, right? Any one of us can do that. We can give money or time or acts of charity to people who are in need. You might have even do, done that. You probably have. But often, the church can help with that. Most of the time, the clergy, the priest or the deacon or one of the leaders knows the struggles that people are going through, but that they're too ashamed of to admit right? Or those things that they're going through are so private that they don't want that brought before the congregation. This is a place that the church can keep that confidentiality with the person that's in need, and you can contribute to them by going through the church and having the church and, and the clergy and the leadership um, spread out that money where it's properly needed, it also protects you, right? We've all run into cases, maybe you haven't, I have as a priest, of people coming to the church 
and trying to abuse that. They might go from church to church collecting money. They might come repeatedly to you and want nothing to do with the body, but we're glad to take your check. That's not alms. That's not what's going on there. And the church can help protect and verify, this person really needs it. I know this person needs it because I've talked to him. I have a relationship with him or her or a family. And I know that the precious alms that you've given to the church can be dispersed to them in full faith that they're using it properly. The gift of alms are given to the church, but why does the church ask this of her people? And what does it have to do with Lent? The simple answer is that God commands it, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The church is to be a mother to her people. A mother to her people. Have you ever heard that phrase? The God is our father, the church is our mother. Why? Where's that come from? Is that biblical? Absolutely it is. Galatians 4.26, Paul writes, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. It's interesting to me that that passage from Galatian is speaking of the fruitfulness and the life that comes from the church who in fact creates no children, right? But there's this parallel of motherhood, this idea of maternity here, that, that the church has sons and daughters, that the church cares for and nurtures sons and daughters. And part of caring for and nurturing, of course, any of you that have, you've all had mothers, you know this, right? That that's a huge part of what the church needs to do, that the giving provisions, giving help. I was talking to one of my friends and we were talking about um, our refugee, Sonny, and I disclosed to him how much money we've given to Sonny in the past several years. And he said, oh my gosh, I, I didn't realize that that still happened. The church does that? The church helps people like that? I thought that was the government's job. No, it's not, it's the church's job. And if we step up, how much better is life for people when it's done locally like that? Where it's done where you can see the person and help the person and guide the person spiritually and help them with their struggles instead of it just being a, a check from some entity. You see, this is what we're commanded to do as a mother, which is strange, that in some sense, I and you, whether you're male or female, are maternal or mothers to one another. The church is all our mother, and we're brought together in that covenant. I believe that this is one of the reasons that Jesus goes through the Sermon of the Mount and the feeding of the 5,000. Notice in the Gospel of John today, verse 1 in chapter 6, what exactly is going on with the feeding of the 5,000, which is probably a lot more than 5,000, by the way. It's 5,000 men, which means it's probably at least 10,000 people. 
What's Jesus teaching his disciples? Did you read it? Did you catch it? Jesus went up, this is verse 3 of chapter 6, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then, and seeing a large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Don't gloss over that. What's Jesus doing here? He's training his disciples to be the church. He's training the apostles to be the church, caring for God's people. And Jesus knows exactly what he's going to do. And Philip responds, where are we to get such bread? 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Sometimes we feel like that as the church. Here we have our alms, but what are they for so many? But what does Jesus do? Where's the alm in this story? Who gives the alms? The little boy. The little boy gives the alms. And what does God do with that offering? He miraculously explodes it to feed 10,000 or more people to the point that there's leftovers to take home. 12 baskets of leftovers. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's showing them how God honors generous hearts. It's not about how much you give. It's about the fact that you give and trust. And it's not about um, fasting and self-denial today. It's about almsgiving. How does almsgiving deal with our hearts? Because that's the repeating theme. Have you noticed it? The first week we talked about what? Fasting or uh, prayer and repentance. The second week we talked about fasting and denial, right? The third week here we're talking about alms. What are all those things to do? We don't just give up things to give up things. We don't just give money to give money. But we do these things during Lent particularly because they shove us out of the way and put God's priorities before us. You see, think about it. You might give a dollar a week to alms or a quarter a week to alms. But is there any difference in what's going on in your heart, whether you give a quarter, a dollar, or $10,000? I mean, it might be more of a sacrifice to some, but it all depends on what we have, right? The, the consistency there is that I'm giving of myself, I'm giving of my heart. I'm making that decision that God's people are important enough that I'm setting this aside for them. How's it connected with Lent? Well, it comes right there in the Ash Wednesday reading. Isaiah 58, uh, chapter 58, verse 6 and 7 reads this way, thusly, it is not the fast that I choose to loose, is not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of the wicked, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke, 
Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked, to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? From your own flesh. There it is, the tie. That the Lord has pity on us and mercy on us. Therefore, we have to have mercy and pity upon one another to look like Jesus. We're taught this directly by Jesus. We're instructed in it by the church who is our mother, both in the rite of the Book of Common Prayer and the 39 Articles of Religion, which is the doctrinal statement to the Anglican Church. In the 38th article of the 39 Articles of Religion, it says, Every man ought of such things as he possesseth, possesseth sorry, liberally to give alms to the poor according to his ability. I must say that as I was preparing, I've missed this all these years. I've done the fasts and the disciplines, but I've, and, and yeah, I've had the alm boxes where I put my loose change in the box for something, but I've never thought about it as an act of devotion. And in a world where we have automatic bill pay, in a world where we mail our checks in or have the bank mail our checks in, which is a good thing, it really is, I do it. It's helpful for the church to have that constant flow. But in that world, I think we miss out if we don't take the time to put aside cash or checks for alms. Because what is the act of devotion if you never see it? If the money's going straight to the church from your bank account and you never miss it, you're missing the spiritual side to it, right? Alms can be a very real way where we can give smaller amounts and exercise that spiritual side of devotion to our Lord. Allow me to suggest this as a discipline or something like it. Try putting an old pickle jar or something in your house, maybe on top of the refrigerator or on the counter. Or remember, maybe, to set a reminder on your phone that's going to remind you to give an alms once a week. You can put it on your calendar. You can do anything like that. Maybe it's just putting those things in place that can help us with this habit, this devotion. Maybe you want to take your, a check or set an amount of cash aside and put it in a separate envelope or write in the memo of the check, alms or the discretionary fund, and stick that in the plate in addition to what other thing you're giving. Understand, this isn't a call for more money. This is a call for a change in heart. The amount doesn't matter. The discipline is what grabs us and helps us love one another. And remember the words of Jesus from Matthew 25, 40. The king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would help us to look more like you. Help us to set aside time, talent, money, means, things that we can do for one another. 
This is such a generous congregation, Lord. I praise you for that. But I ask that you would help us to make sure that we're developing that spiritual side of our devotion so that we might love one another, so that we might love you more, so that we might see one another's needs. And so those of us who are in need might see your face through the church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.